All right, everyone, welcome back to another uh, weekly roundup episode of On the Margin. I am joined today by my new co-host, uh, Maiden Voyage, with Mr. Mark Yusko. Mark, welcome. All right. Well, thank you. Great to be here. I, I am actually really excited about this. It's almost like uh, we get to rebirth Wall Street Week uh, for the digital age. <laughs> Exactly. I think we'll be even better. Honestly, I have faith in us. I think we can. Uh, I think we can even one up it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Mark, I'm sure most folks uh, on the show are going to be familiar with who you are. But do you want to just do a quick 30 second intro? What you're doing at Morgan Creek? All that kind of stuff. I, come on, Michael. You know I don't do short well. But all right, yeah. So, uh, Mark Yusko, I am the founder, CEO, and CIO of Morgan Creek Capital Management, and also the managing partner of Morgan Creek Digital. That's our new entity that we formed back in 2017 to focus on digital assets, uh, do venture capital, as well as manage some liquid protocols. So uh, that's, that's mostly it in a nutshell. I mean, Morgan Creek Capital has been around for coming up on 20 years. Uh, we focus on integrating alternative investments into traditional portfolios, and, and I came out of the endowment and foundation world as a CIO before that. All right. Amazing. Um, well, with that being said, let's just dive right into it here. Let's see if uh, you can still look at charts and come up with some interesting analysis, which I'm sure you uh, I know you bring the mustard. So uh, let me see if you I know can. I have no strong opinions. I, no, yeah, no strong opinions from you, Mark. Yeah, no I know. Strong we didn't we didn't put boxing gloves or anything on you uh, when you spoke at uh, DAS in that little thumbnail, which is still <laughs> all time right. video. That's right. Um, all right. So with this first first chart here, we're looking at uh, U.S. total uh, equity market cap to GDP. Um, we're going all the way back to 1970 and looking at it uh, to 2021. So obviously you got the nifty 50 back there uh, all the way back in the day. And basically the point of this chart is just kind of measuring um, like uh, valuation of the stock market. So it looks uh, rich here. But uh, Mark, what do you think basically about where we are uh, in the cycle? We are in stupidville in terms of valuation. <laughs> And, you know, the problem is that, that markets can behave rationally longer than, the rational, longer than the rational investor can remain solvent from Lord Keynes. And, and, and that's where we are. Look, I really didn't believe that we would go back to the craziness. I mean, 2000 was crazy. I mean, mm. Cisco was selling 286 times earnings. And think about that. To, to pay $286 for a dollar. That means you have to live about 104 years to make a 10% return. It's a long time, right? Long so, time. Yeah. Uh, and that's just a 10% return. That's not even an above average return. So uh, Cisco fell 84%. It's still not back to its previous high. Think about that. It's, it's 21 years later. It's still not back to its previous high. So when things get to these levels, and, and now we're at a level even beyond that craziness, and everybody says, oh, but it's all justified by low interest rates. Well, okay, let's, let's break that down for a second. Let's take that to the illogical extreme. If interest rates go to zero, which I actually think they will, are stocks mm. worth infinity? Right? Yeah, Anything divided by zero is, is infinity. So is that true? Well, no, of course it's not true. And in fact, low interest rates are a sign of economic weakness, not strength. So mm. this is uh, the all-time mania. It's, it's the result of gamification of the markets. We got, you know, pajama traders, you know, trading on margin and, and, you know, focusing on illiquid securities. And it's just one of these things uh, that's compounded by money illusion. And that yeah. whole chart, if you look at it from left to right, is, and you smooth the trend, it, it is a perfect example of what's been going on in the United States since 1913, which is the destruction of the value of the dollar and the theft of wealth from the middle class and the poor to the rich. Yeah. And that's all this is. It's a straight transfer of wealth. It's straight kleptocracy. And, and it's sad. And, and no one really focuses on it. And you know, I look at this chart and I say, hey, congratulations, America. We have turned into Venezuela. Venezuela has yeah. the best performing stock market the last three years. But did anyone want to own Venezuelan stocks? No. Because no. the boulevard got absolutely trashed, and the dollar is being trashed right before our eyes. Uh, housing prices down here in Chapel Hill, right? My daughter moved back here from Santa Monica. Her and her husband want to buy a house. House prices went up 18% last quarter in three months. That's insane, right? The houses yeah. didn't get better. They didn't grow. It's, it's simply that the, the value of the currency— that we denominate things in 
is getting less valuable. Now, the best thing about this chart is it, it makes the point so, so wonderfully, but let's think about this. If we didn't denominate that chart in a shit coin, the US dollar, and we denominated it in real money, gold, it would be dead flat since yeah. 1996. Yeah. Just let that sink in for a second. The value of stocks denominated in gold is actually dead flat since 1996. Mm. So let, let me let me ask you a question because I, uh, by the way, that housing example. So on last week's roundup, we actually looked at, we had two charts about home prices on there. And one was the amount of years that it took to pay for the median home price in America from the mid 70s. Oh, yeah. It's gone up from like three years to six and a half. But the real kicker is we tracked uh, what the average uh, age of a homeowner was uh, from the 70s till yep. now. Uh, and it's gone from something like 29 in the 70s to 47 today is the medium, yep. uh, age, which is insane. And even just since the, the great financial crisis, it's gone up by eight years. But let me ask you this, because I, I love that intro, Mark, by the way. Yeah, no strong opinions from you. So let's take a, let's take a look at this next, uh, this next chart here, um, which is we're looking at the share of global currency in the trade finance market. Uh, so trade finance, huge market. Uh, and this is basically just a kind of a good proxy for which currencies are being used in global trade. So we've got the US yeah. dollar in 2019, the US dollar in 2021. So for the last two years, I've, I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but it's something like, you know, uh, 30... 6% of M2 for the for the US dollar uh, has been created in the last 18 months. But here it's still yep. being used uh, as the primary denominator in the trade finance market. So how do you kind of explain, uh, rationalize these, you know, two, here's these the two thing. thoughts? So world reserve currencies uh, are, you know, what they are, and they're determined historically by naval superiority. So mm -hmm. back in the 1400s, it was Portugal because they had the tallest trees, and so they had the fastest ships. Then Spain took them over, and so they had the fastest ships. And then France took them over, and then Spain, or then uh, the Netherlands, and then the UK got steam, and then we got nuclear power, and so you know we have superior navy. Mm -hmm. And you know China has been ascendant, so you can see China now in yep. third place, and they have a goal, right? They they want to be. Uh, the world reserve currency. Now, whether they can achieve that goal remains to be seen. They are now a world reserve currency, right? They are in the uh, SDR. So they are a currency that central banks around the world hold. And mm -hmm. they are increasing the usage of the renminbi uh, relative to other currencies around the world. Now, in the last couple of years, it has stalled, certainly. Uh, part of that is just you know, what's happened with, with global trade collapsing because of COVID. Um, and global trade just, you know, fell off a cliff. I and mean, you can see it everywhere and supply chain problems and, you know, try to try to buy a bicycle. I went to try to buy a bicycle. Can't find them, right? Mm -hmm. they, just, they just don't exist. Try to buy, you know, computer chips. I went to buy a, a computer printer for my wife the other day. Yeah, yeah. The, sh the shelves were empty. So, so that's part of it. The, the second part of it is the, the dollar is the hegemonic, currency around the world because we created it that way in 1971, right? We mm -hmm. went off the gold standard, we cut a deal with Saudi, and we went on the oil standard, we created petrodollars, and we promised to protect the Saudis at all costs, no matter what, as long as they priced all currencies in dollars. And anyone who challenged that was immediately disposed of. Remember, Saddam Hussein said, nope, I'm going to price yeah. oil in euros. He disappeared. Um, Gaddafi said, I'm going to price oil in gold. He disappeared. So you don't want to challenge the petrodollar authority because they, they disappear you. And so now what's going to happen, I believe, is China is going to uh, create this digital renminbi. And that is going to achieve for the first time a shift. Because if you're in Venezuela over the last few years and Maduro is stealing all your money through cronyism and kleptocracy and devaluing mm -hmm. the bolivar, your only choice was to turn your, your bolivars into something like Dash or Monero or Bitcoin before it, it went out of business. Well, if there is a digital currency that they can buy, and, and before there were digital assets, what did they do? They went out in the street and they tried to buy greenbacks. And the problem yeah. was some of them were real, some of them were fake, uh, and it was a real problem. But they actually physically went out to find American dollars. Now they look at digital assets. Dash is going crazy down there. 
So I think it's interesting that the digital renminbi could change this chart. And I believe the dollar is on its way down. Now, the reason this chart hasn't changed that much in terms of relative is mm -hmm. everybody is devaluing at the same time. Yeah. The, the right. Chinese, I mean, the, uh, except the Chinese, the Americans are devaluing, the Europeans are devaluing, the Japanese are devaluing. Everybody is devaluing because that is the only way out. When an empire gets into debt, right? You have four options. I tweeted this yep. out yesterday, right? You have four I options. I saw this tweet. I saw this tweet. Yeah, this was great. Yeah. You mm -hmm. can pay it back. You can uh, restructure it. You can default on it or you can devalue it away. Well, we can't pay it back. Right? If you taxed everybody 100% of their income and their wealth, we couldn't pay back the debt, right? Here, Japan, Europe, can't do it. You could restructure it, but to restructure something, you got to have somebody take the other side. No one mm -hmm. wants the other side. People aren't buying our bonds anymore. So who's buying them? The central no. banks, right? which I think you might have a chart about. And mm -hmm. then uh, if you can't restructure it, then you got to default on it. Well, hell no, you're not going to default on it because then you get kicked out. And remember, politics. Mm -hmm. No left, no right, no Republicans, no Democrats. There's in and out. And when you're out, you do or say whatever it takes to get in. And when you're in, you do or say whatever it takes to stay in. And defaulting on debt would get you out. So you don't do it. So you stay in. So the only way out is to devalue your currency. And that is what we're doing. And the idea, you said it, 36, I think it's actually now 40% uh, of U.S. dollars have been created in the last 18 months. We've been a republic since 1776. 40% of the dollars ever created yeah. in 18 months. That's insane. Think about it. If I have a dollar, I mean, if I have a pile of a million dollars here on my table, and I give you a pile of a million dollars on your table, what happened to the value of those currencies? They just got cut in half. And every mm -hmm. time you create money by fiat out of thin air, you destroy the purchasing power. And you know, again, people have heard me talk about this before. Think about you. This doesn't work for you because you're young. I'm old. But I ask people my age. Age is a number, What's the Mark. lowest price you remember number. for gas? What do, you, what do you remember? I mean, for gas, mine was 31 cents. My first car, mm. I filled up for 31 cents a gallon. Mm. I just paid $4.31. It's the same gallon of gas. It does the mm -hmm. same thing. It produces the same amount of heat, actually a little less because it's got ethanol in it. It didn't get better. The gas didn't get better. The money got worse. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. But China has a ways to go before they can claim superiority. Uh, but they have a plan, and they are playing a different game than the rest of us. Right? The rest of us are arguing about how to set up the checkerboard, put up sanctions and trade barriers, and they're just playing a different game. They are so far ahead of us. Right? You think about this whole thing about, oh, the Chinese market is uninvestable. Think about who lost all the money with these changes to the rules on Chinese stocks? Was it Chinese investors or American investors? America, yeah. American that's, investors. That's such a good point. I, you know, I actually didn't end up pulling this as a story for this episode, but one thing that I would love to get your opinion on is if you just look at how the US um, is conducting regulation right now and all of the stuff that's going on over in China, I think it's really interesting to look at how these two governments are kind of dealing with similar problems, but their solutions are drastically different, right? In China, it's all about kind of control. There's this crackdown. They're trying to control commodity prices. They're releasing commodities from their strategic reserves to try to control that. They're trying to slash and lower the price of education. And in the US, I'm not 100% sure what our strategy is anymore, but it is just really that interesting. Would, Michael, we would have to have a strategy. In order to understand what the strategy is, there would have yeah. to actually be a strategy. We don't have yeah. strategy. We mm -hmm. have cronyism and kleptocracy. Mm -hmm. We have a system of government in the United States that is designed. And this is the thing. Everybody says, oh, you know, QE is not working. No, it's working perfectly. It's doing yeah. exactly what it was described, um, um, created to do. It is stealing wealth from the middle class and siphoning it up. China is doing the exact opposite. They're trying to push wealth down, right? They're stealing it. They're doing Robin Hood, right? They're stealing they from are. the rich, the Jack Ma's. And, and look what, what uh, Alibaba just agreed to. Alibaba just agreed. I love this. This is total extortion. They just agreed to fund, which means pay into, uh, not by their free will, but fund a, a big fund to create social welfare to mm. raise the living standards of the masses. Now, why are they doing that? Well, because if you have a system, which they had for a long time, 
where only a small number of people get rich, right? There are 80,000 senators in, in the party, and then above that there was a really small Politburo. And if the system was designed for those people to get rich and everybody else to be poor, well, then when you transition from a manufacturing economy to a consumer economy, there's nobody to consume. So what you have to do is you have to take some of that wealth and you've got to push it back down so that the average person can consume. So they can buy an air conditioner and a bicycle and a motor scooter and an apartment. And you know they've taken 750 million people. Think about that. Two times the population of the United States out of abject poverty and push them into the lower middle class. Now they want to push them up into the upper middle class. And the biggest consumer market in the world over the next 20, 30, 40 years is going to be China. And so we're fighting this war with policy, quote unquote, uh, idiot, idiotacy is what I call it. Uh, mm -hmm. if that's even a word. Um, but we're using 1930s technology, kind of like the financial markets with the 40 Act. Mm -hmm. We're using 1930s technology, trade barriers, because we think it's about made in China. We think it's about them taking our jobs and selling us cheap goods. No, 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 no. The future mm -hmm. is about made for China. It's about making things in other places and selling them to this greatest consumer market in the world. And on the flip side, we're doing exactly the opposite. We are creating a system that siphons the money to the top and makes the rich richer. We have the highest wealth and income inequality in the history of mankind. But that's been the plan since 1913. From 1776 to 1913, a dollar, which was stolen from the Dutch, the Rothschilds, who have owned banking for 700 years, called dollar. So we had a dollar. Mm -hmm. And it had a couple up and down around two wars, but it was a dollar. And in 1913, John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, buddies, went to John D.'s dad, Amory Aldrich, and said, hey, let's create a central bank that will control everything and make us bankers, or banksters, as I like to call them, really, really rich. And that's what the central banks do. They make people at the top rich, which you actually have a slide for. Yes. So you started. To, I'm glad we're talking about this now. We bring it back to wealth inequality here a ton, a, a lot. I, I personally think yeah, I love the way that you frame this in terms of how empires fall. They get in debt. The precursor to debt tends to be wealth inequality. And you can look at this in the Roman Empire. I'll send you this thing after. Yeah. Actually, it's this. Uh, some guy wrote his master's thesis on this, and I have referenced this and probably sent it to like 25 people. I've tried so hard to get in touch with this guy. Oh, he won't respond it. to my DMs. Uh, it's great. But you can literally look at uh, early century Roman Empire, and it goes through the same thing. It's like wealth inequality, uh, slowdown in the economy, money printing, administrative bureaucracy, complete you know, eradication of the empire. But this, this is a pretty interesting chart here. So CEO to worker compensation. Uh, so you can just see it's like absolutely nuts, right? Um, as CEO comp. And one pretty interesting thing to note on this chart. So when they're talking about realized and granted CEO compensation, this is including the way that most CEOs get compensated today, which is stock options. And uh, CEO pay was actually a really big issue um, for the Clinton administration. Um, yeah. And so yeah. they basically, they drafted this thing, which was uh, basically any compensation salary over $1 million would not be tax deductible uh, for that company, but they included a big loophole. That's only in salary. That does not include yeah. performance incentives. So basically what they told everyone was to pay themselves in stock, right? Probably well-intentioned, but there's a huge loophole. So now what do you have? You have Absolutely. not only CEOs paying themselves more than they ever have, but to your point about devaluation of the dollar, they've actually separated how the upper class, right, management, CEOs, fund managers, et cetera, pay themselves yeah. in equity because it's tax-advantaged compared to everyone else, which earns money in dollars. is not oh, a tax-advantage. And then it gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then the government passes laws that reduce the taxation on corporations mm -hmm. as long as they agree to use the money that they save to buy back their stock, which the kleptocrats, people like Warren Buffett, own in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. I mean, I rail about this all the time. Apple had the same revenues last year as 2015. Right? No growth. Really? Is no that growth. true? <laughs> yeah. That's but. Per share, it went up 20% because they reduced the share count. The share That's count. just financial engineering, and people don't yeah. back it out. I, I don't understand. We have this, this industry that is supposed to do analysis, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're called analysts on, on Wall Street, but, but they're not. They're just paid shills, and the right. highest payments, right? Take Tesla, right? 
there is not one piece of research written on Tesla that's worth anything because it's all paid for by the underwriting fees. And mm -hmm. you, can, you can do a perfect correlation, a perfect linear correlation between the rah-rah and how much they pay in underwriting for a debt issuance or a stock issuance. And it's the same. I, my analysts get fired if they say something negative about a company. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've set up this system to enrich the rich. And yeah. this chart, it, just, it, it makes me angry because it is theft, right? I mean, it is complete and total theft. And nobody thinks about it that way. They're like, oh, well, these people are so smart. No, no, think about it. The, the typical hierarchical corporation was designed, right, during the industrial age to leverage the smartest person at the top. Now, it happened to be a white male, usually, but now that's changed a little bit. But at the Just beginning, happened. it was, it was yeah, all white right. males, old right. white males, yeah. pale, stale, and male. And <laughs> it, everything. And so what did we have? We had a lot of worker bees at the bottom of that pyramid to move the products and ultimately the, the uh, stuff at the top. And the smarter the CEO, the better the company. Well, yeah. that was in a centralized world, in an industrial world, as we've migrated from the analog age to the electronic age to now the digital age, and we've migrated from an industrial society to a consumer and services society where we don't make anything, right? Mm -hmm. We just entertain each other, yeah. literally. I mean, America doesn't make anything. We make oil, right? So we're now a big producer of oil. So we, we didn't make it, right? The dinosaurs made it or whatever process makes it. And, you know, we make a few cars when we can get the chips from China, South mm -hmm. Korea. But... But we don't make anything. So what do we do? We entertain each other, right? This is a crazy one. I have a 10-year-old. You know, I have the funny family with the older kids and then, and then the caboose. And my 10-year-old my is part of this cohort where they, they surveyed him and said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? 36% said they want to be a YouTube influencer. I know. What? Not it's, it's a what fireman, a doctor. Yeah. I, at, least, at least for me, I, I have this funny thing. So my, my son... You know, I have two older kids. My wife uh, was staying home with them, and then she had a job when the, the caboose came along 20 years later. And so we got a babysitter, and the babysitter spoke solamente espanol to Will since he's been five weeks old. So he's, he's bilingual. I'm not. And so to help him with his homework, I use Google Translate. So I'll talk into the phone, and I'll say, hey, Will, you know, we had pork chops and applesauce for dinner, and Google Translate will tell it. And I'll say, how do you say that? And he'll say it. So I was talking to the phone, and I said, you know, when I grew up, I want to be a fireman. And he says, no, Dad, when I grow up, I want your job. I want to be head of Morgan Creek. I'm like, okay, all right. So what we try to do is we try to buy things before other people realize they want to buy them. All right? So what would you buy? Without missing a beat, he says, computers with holograms. I'm like, I'm done. I'm retired. You're the CEO. So I now work for Will Yusko. Mark, I have, a, I have a question for you. Does your son play Roblox? Does he know that game? Or like, have you heard that before? He, 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 he knows it. He doesn't play Roblox as much as Minecraft. Minecraft. Uh, he, he and his buddies are big into Minecraft. And, and actually, um, my son is still big on Nintendo Switch. So he plays a lot of Mario and, uh, and those things. But he, he's, he's not as big into Roblox as some. But Roblox is amazing. The, the reason I ask is, honestly, someone should make uh, like an index of, of stuff that kids are obsessed with. And I would buy that every yep. time. I, I tell the story all the time. My dad absolutely hates it. So, Dad, I'm sorry if you're listening. Uh, my dad, when I was in sixth grade, at, he was like, I want, you to, I want you to get into investing. So I want you to pick a stock and I'm going to buy some of that stock for you. So, six, so I was 12. This was like, you know, whatever, 15 years ago. Um, I, the stock that I picked was Apple 15 years ago. Um, Love it. And my, but, but my dad, you know, this was pre-every stock split. Uh, it was like eighteen dollars. Yep. My dad was like, "This is overvalued," so he told me that he bought Apple, absolutely. But he bought Polymer Tech something, something or other, which went up like thirty percent. And he didn't, yeah, didn't didn't buy it. No, so he it didn't like, buy I, your stock. Oh, that's yeah, didn't crazy. buy my stock. And then you know what's funny? He asked my sister, who's two years younger than I am. He was like, "I want you to pick a stock as well. I'll buy it for you." You know what the stock she picked? Google. Also thought that was overvalued. <laughs> didn't wow. buy it. I'm sorry, Dad. You've out done of, a lot for me, but I still think the story is so funny. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's awesome. And, and what it goes to is that uh, anything that people use mm -hmm. is going to, you know, be valuable. And, and 
asking somebody what they actually use is a pretty good way to to uh, to make money. In fact, one of my favorite stories about Apple. Uh, now I have a new favorite one. I love this one. But mm-hmm. there was a, a hedge fund manager who, uh, back in the day, uh, when you could still do this, he hired college kids to go into the Apple stores and ask the clerks how many iPods they were selling. Back when it was the little you know square thing. And he was the first one who knew they were going to sell a million iPods in a year. And the stock was like, you know, $3 or something. And everybody's like, oh, it's overvalued. And they're never going to hit these t- targets. And I think the street was like at 300000 He's like, no, they're going to do a million. And I actually challenged him. I said, no, come on, Brett. There's no way you walk in and the guy's going to tell you. He says, are you kidding, Mark? You ask somebody making minimum wage what they think, they'll pull out the books, the records. They'll show you everything. <laughs> He said, we had perfect information. I'm like, oh, my that God, is that's incredible. awesome. And then, that is such and then they story. made that illegal, right? They said mm. that that's illegal. I'm like, why is that illegal? That's just intelligent. That's just smart. That's just hard work. Yeah. That's like you know, sitting on the side of the road counting cars that go into the mall. Why is that wrong? Now yeah. there's satellites to do that. I but, was just saying, now they use the satellites for the just, parking, <laughs> parking lots. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing insight, and, and he executed on it. And, and so I think in general – uh, what this points to is as we migrate into new systems, uh, they'll, all the good stuff starts at the fringe. I talk about this. I've, I've made my whole career right, so, about hanging out with the bad guys. Yes. And gals, right? But the, ha- mm-hmm. the bad So in the early days when I first joined Notre Dame, right, we had just had this big recession in, in the early 90s. And we went to the board and said, we want to buy junk bonds because they were really, really cheap. And they're like, no, no, no. Uh, uh, Ivan Boski is a bad guy. Michael Milken's a bad guy. I'm like, I don't want to buy them. I want to buy their innovation, which mm-hmm. has created incredible wealth by making financing available to small companies for the first time. It had been hoarded by the big companies and the big banks, and this was an amazing innovation. And you know, then uh, we invested in the internet. Right. And it was going to rot your brain, so to speak. And and it was going to be no more important than a fax machine, according to Krugman. Krugman. And to your Google point. Right. I've told the story hundreds of times that we put, you know, 500K through Sequoia into Google and turned into 200 million dollars. There should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. And that was my first aha moment that infrastructure hmm. mattered. And it's why I'm doing what I do. Right. Eight years ago, I spent zero time in digital assets. I got introduced to Bitcoin the same time as the Winklevoss twins. They're multi-billionaires. I'm not because I'm an idiot. And Dan Moorhead gave it to me on a silver platter, and I just didn't get it. I wasn't running drugs on Silk Road. I was not a cryptography student. I didn't get it. And more importantly, I didn't do the work. Mm-hmm. It took me the next three years to do the work, and then I kind of went all in in 17, 18, which was still fine and early. It wasn't as early as I should have been. But, and now I'm spending all my time doing this. I mean, mm-hmm. all of it. And I love it. And it is so fun because the bad guys and gals do the cool stuff, like Roblox mm-hmm. or the one that's killing me. Oh, this is killing me. So during lockdown, my then nine-year-old uh, introduced me to Pokemon Go. And we went out and did Pokemon Go together. And we've been bla- and now I like it more than he does. I mean, I'm totally addicted to it. <laughs> but the crazy thing is there is a decentralized version of it called Axie Infinity that I, I could have done. I know. And it's killing me. And here's the crazy thing. Axie Infinity did more revenue than Fortnite in the last 12 months. Yeah. That's unbelievable. It's awesome. It's unbelievable. Though. Well, so this, this next, uh, these next couple of slides kind of feeds into this whole CEO to worker. So you can look at this and just say, look, this is completely nuts at this point, the divide that has come between the elite versus, you know, kind of everyone else. So I'm not sure if you've noticed this, uh, but there, there, the labor shortages are pretty crazy right now. And these started yep. cropping up back, yep. uh, you know, a couple months ago. And in the beginning, it was like, oh, you know, you can't find, uh, you know, minimum wage people to, you know, take care of your country clubs. Like, why don't you just pay them more? I have no, so this is just completely anecdotal. It's never good to like totally go off anecdotal stuff. But um, in New York, so I live in Williamsburg and virtually Every restaurant that I go to now, you know, it's printed right there on the menus, like help wanted, bear with us. You know, we can't find workers. Uh, There are surcharges now being applied. They're like, hey, if you want to contribute an extra 5% on top of the tax. So it's just pretty crazy. Now, we'll we'll get into these reasons, but 
I, I will say as well, and what people blame, you know, people blame the the benefits that the that the government is giving. This is a pretty interesting chart because it literally just shows you change in non-farm payrolls April to July. It's not different uh, between states that prematurely cut the benefits and maintain the benefits. So that's not the reason. Um, and if you look at this particular chart here, which was produced by BCA Research, um, it, it actually looks like people have a financial cushion, right? So my interpretation of everything that we're just talking about, uh, you know, people are kind of looking around and saying, this is this is nuts. I, I am just not getting compensated for the work that I'm doing. I'm watching everyone else get uh, stupid rich. Um, I finally have some money. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm not, I'm not going to rush back into the workforce. And I think you're starting to see companies freak out. The labor, the labor market is extremely tight, uh, right now. So I'm curious, yeah, like in certain areas, the labor market is definitely tight. I mean, mm-hmm. it's definitely tight in, in the lower wage service industries. And, and the nature of that is, look, we, we did a whole bunch of things wrong, right? Mm-hmm. We, we got, we got tough on immigration yet we're a country of immigrants and, and uh, yeah, that's just... you think about it, the, the average person who's willing to do uh, low-wage work is not going to be a highly educated college grad you know, from an a, you know, urban suburb, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be somebody who came here with nothing and, and works their butt off, and, and not, all, not just immigrants. But it, it's, it's just there's an entitlement problem, right? We have, we have this trophy, uh, uh, our participation trophy world in which we live. And I hate it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't stand it. Uh, I tell a story all the time about, you know, my son, when he was four, he went to the first soccer team. They went 0 for 10. 0 for 10. And they gave him a medal. And I took the medal, and I threw it in the trash. And everyone was horrified. And I'm like, no, no, you don't get a medal for going 0 for, right? You have to win. You have to aspire. You have to, you have to do something. And remember, part of kleptocracy and part of empires and part of, of cronyism is designed around impoverishing the masses. Well, how do you impoverish the masses? Well, you make them dependent on government handouts, okay? So you give them free stuff. Bread and, and you discourage them from being productive members of society. And look, Jimmy Song talks about this. I love Jimmy and, you know, I wish I could look like Jimmy with the hat and, and so cool. But, but he talks about this all the time, that if you have a salary, and this is a toxically charged word, right? You're a slave. It's just a fact. And you're a slave to an asset that can be taken from you through inflation. Inflation is the biggest craziness perpetrated on the American people, actually all people, ever. Right? This idea that inflation is good for you, that prices should go up, no, they should not. Mm-hmm. Right? The way things should go up in value is if you create new things, if you build new things, not by decree of devaluation of the currency. That's all inflation is. It's just a fancy word for currency devaluation. And so we've set up this world in which people believe they're entitled, right? They should sit at home and get free money from the government and day trade on GameStop. And that's okay. It's not okay, right? You're not contributing to society. You're not doing anything. And the, un- the extended unemployment benefits, it's definitely true that if you give people unemployment benefits, they will not look for jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you take them away, they will go look for jobs. Now, some of them won't, to your point, because they're still, you know, they made some money in, you know, trading or, or they got a gig economy thing that they don't report. Um, and look, work from anywhere helps too. I, I do think that the the movement to digitization everywhere, not just digital markets and digital assets, but digital world is, yeah. is a really good thing. And, you know, we can do this from anywhere. Right? Yeah. We can talk to each other. We can, we can, inter- you know, I don't have to travel as much, which is bad for certain companies like American Airlines, which I used to spend a lot of money. I mean, like a lot of money on D- American Airlines. I haven't gotten on an airplane in a long time. So yeah. y- yet I'm, I'm, equally productive because of uh, technology. Howdy, everyone. If you're a long-term investor in Ethereum, then listen up because I am talking directly to you here. If you've been listening to the show for the last two months, then you know that I am a big, big fan of ETH and the entire world of DeFi that's being built on top of it. It's honestly just super, super interesting, but it's also probably the single greatest wealth creation opportunity that I am ever going to see in my entire life. And the best thing about ETH is that you can hold it, but with this new upgrade to 2.0, you can also stake it and earn yield that way. The only problem is under the current set of rules, 
unless you have 32 ETH or at today's price is almost $100,000, then you can't stake it until now. Our good friends over at Matrix Sport just unrolled a solution which allows investors with as few as five ETH to start staking today. At the time of this recording, you can earn up to 9% APY, although that's going to vary based on the protocol. So stop what you're doing. Stop listening to me. Go click the link at the bottom of this episode. If it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or whatever it is, click that link, go over to the website and tell them that I sent you. All right, give me a little credit, but definitely go click the link. Start learning about how you can stake your ETH and earn yield or other yield generation opportunities. Um, I want to make sure we move on to cover some of these stories that we've outlined. So it's been a pretty interesting story week. Um, and just to give uh, everyone a, a headline of what we're going to cover here. So uh, John Paulson, a very famous hedge fund manager, called cryptocurrencies a worthless bubble. So I want to get into that. Uh, Gary Gensler signaled that a ban for payment uh, for order flow might be on the table. But honestly, Mark, what I really love your opinion on is just like what he's... Because uh, I kind of hear whispers you know, every now and again, and it really does seem like... Um, the SEC is starting to wake up and pay attention to crypto in a pretty big way. Um, yep. And then um, I really would like to talk about the crypto exchange FTX. They're acquiring Ledger X, uh, which is a pretty interesting move because they're paving the way into that paves the way into the derivatives market into the U.S. So this, I should say this is FTX U.S. purchasing its their uh, operating subsidiary yeah, 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 in the yeah. U.S. Um, and just the dynamic of because exchanges at one point had this big decision to make, like, do we try to be the regulated exchange or do we just go as big as possible, get volume uh, and then Amen. kind of move in that way? Yeah. So let's start with this uh, this story about Pulse. I'll kind of give the background here and then uh, kind of tee it up for you. So uh, basically, it's a Bloomberg article that came a little while ago. Uh, BlockWorks reported on it, too. But ever since John Paulson bet against the U.S. housing market more than a decade ago, he's been looking for kind of his next big trade. Uh, and when we say big trade, that one trade netted John Paulson and his investors $20 billion, right? So this guy made... He had a career before this, but this is how he really made his name as, as kind of a legend. Uh, I will say not to take anything away from the guy, his investment returns after that have not been super stellar, uh, right? So he was doing a he was doing an interview, um, I think it was with uh, David Rubenstein, uh, and he basically is looking at uh, a bunch of areas of the market that look pretty frothy. So he kind of put uh, SPACs, um, you know, meme stocks, and and eventually in cryptocurrencies in the same sort of bucket, and he said that eventually they'll prove to be worthless. So Mark, what's, what's your take on, on kind of Paulson's uh, saying this? Uh, it's so hard for me because, look, I mean, John, in in many ways, is part of the reason that, that I, I'm sitting here. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the reason Morgan Creek became anything is uh, when I left the university, uh, when I was I working at University of North Carolina, and mm-hmm. uh, I decided to leave and start my own firm. And you start your own firm. It's scary and you, know, you might not be successful, and right. and you're taking risk. And, and I got an email, and it said, say it ain't so, Julian. And I joked, I don't get a lot of emails from billionaires. In fact, that was my very first one. And uh, I thought Julian Robertson, uh, famous mm-hmm. from Tiger, was, was going to try to talk me into staying. And I mm-hmm. thought I was going to get my Nike shoe deal, right? Mm-hmm. So the coach at North Carolina makes 200000 bucks, not very much. He makes right. $4 million. Well, how does he do that? Well, he has a Nike shoe deal, and he's got radio and television. And so, you know, I was making $150,000 at the time, and so they don't pay you a lot to work at a university. And, but I loved my job. I mean, I loved every day of my job. I got the psychic income from helping the students and the faculty. And I thought he was going to try to talk me into staying. So I got on a plane, came up to New York, and I go to his office, and he comes out, he puts his arm around me and says, Mark, I'm surprised you lasted this long. I like you, and I want to work together. I'm like, I will hit that bid. It was like one of the greatest days of my life. And he funded, he gave me some working capital to start Morgan, Morgan Creek. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things he tells people when they would leave Tiger, right, whether it was Lee Ainsley or John, um, John Griffin or, or Steve Mandel or Chase Coleman, uh, they say, you know, do you have any advice? And he'd say, yeah, make sure in the first two years you get lucky. <laughs> like, well, that's really good advice, hard to follow. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we launched in, in 2004. And we launched a couple of products in 2005, and, and we started off, and we went from two families to 10, and it went dead flat. And I'm like, oh, okay. And another year went by, and we were still dead flat. I was like, oh, geez, what have I done? You know, I, I took all this risk, and they were not growing, and then we got lucky. And uh, I, I had met John, and John was a, a great, and still is a great merger arbitrageur, one mm-hmm. of the best ever. Uh, but merger arbitrage was kind of going down because, you know, technology was giving everybody the spreads versus the old days where one firm had a better model. 
Mm -hmm. Long story short, he had come up with this idea on subprime. Now, whether he did it or one of his guys or whether he took it from the dentist in California, doesn't really matter. But John was one. He did it. And and we, I went all in, right? I put money with five different people, John Paulson, John Burbank, Kyle Bass, um, uh, a couple other guys in in New York. And and, uh, we put 10% of client assets short subprime. And we made a ton of money for our clients. And that's why we became kind of not famous like him, but but that's how we went from a couple billion dollars to many, many, many billions of dollars. And and uh, we had a really good run. And that was my luck. I, I got lucky to to meet him. And now I had to actually agree with him and I had to put the money in. So it wasn't right. just all luck. There was a little bit of, of effort. But so so I owe John a lot. And I have been friends with John for, for years now. And and I have nothing but respect to your point. You know, subsequently, you know, he's, he's had his his trials. Uh, but here's the thing. I said, with all that said, and I have nothing but respect and admiration and love, actually, for John. I just think he's dead wrong. I mean, I think he's just completely wrong. And, and I think he's where the average smart person is about digital assets. They haven't done the work. And so everyone I know. Everyone I know and admire and respect in this space started skeptical, including myself, right? I missed it in 2013. I mean, Dan Moore had laid it on a silver platter. He said, here's Bitcoin, here's picks and shovels. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't get Bitcoin. But picks and shovels, I get those. I'll invest in those. It's been great. And we're early investors in a lot of things like Coinbase and BlockFi and a whole bunch of other things, and it's been awesome. But if you don't do the work, you will remain skeptical. Yeah. Because people are going to spread FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And if you listen to the media, and more importantly, if you listen to the incumbents, and this will weave into the next story about re- uh, regulation in the SEC, incumbents will always use fear and regulatory hurdles to stop innovation and disruption. Because people don't like to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. Right? If you ask the average person, why are stoops in downtown New York, nine feet above street level, right? There are these old homes, these old brownstones, and the stoop mm-hmm. to the house is nine feet above street level. I'm like, well, why is that? Well, it's because of horse shit. Like, literally, <laughs> they'd sweep the horse poop to the side of the street, and it would pile up four or five feet tall, and the ladies didn't like walking in it, so they built elevated sidewalks nine feet high, and the stoop of the house was on that elevated sidewalk. Now, the problem is if you got drunk late at night and you fell off the sidewalk into the poop, it was bad. But, but that's why that existed. And the street sweepers, when the horseless carriage came out, passed out pamphlets saying you'd die if you got in a horseless carriage. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so then they tried to pass regulations saying, oh, well, you can't bring horseless carriages into the city because we've got to protect the workers because mm-hmm. they didn't want to lose their jobs. We have more jobs today than we've ever had in the history of mankind. We've lost more jobs than the history. So that's the way it works, right? We, we lose old jobs and we build new jobs. And it's the, those people working on the fringes to build new ideas and build new businesses that create the new jobs, right? How many people work for Amazon? Amazon didn't exist 24 years ago, right? And that's the way the world works. Innovation is good. Disruption is good. And so John is, I think, unfortunately wrong. He's made a big bet on gold and hadn't, it worked really well back in 2009, 2010, up through 2011. And it's just been a shit show since – I shouldn't swear so much. But uh, it's, been a, it's been a bad investment since 2011. And, you know, we got the Peter Schiff war, and, and he keeps clinging to it. And the reality is that it's going down in a world where the amount of money is going up. That's illogical because gold – Historically, for 5,000 years, was the only money in the world. Yeah. Money is an asset that exists in the absence of a liability. Everything else is currency. Currency is different. Currency is associated with a liability, government debt. Right. So currencies, the reason they devalue over time is the government debt gets too high. Money, gold, doesn't have a liability. So it stores value. It keeps its value. What Bitcoin has become, it's not what it was envisioned to be, what it has become is digital gold. And it's a beautiful store of value. And I think it will, for hundreds of years, be a perfect store of value because it's more scarce now than gold. So John made a bet on gold. It hasn't really worked out. 
and and he and Schiff and others won't change their mind. And I think that's maybe the most dangerous thing in investing. Right? Yeah. I told you at the beginning, I don't have any strong opinions. Ha, ha, ha. I have lots of strong opinions. <laughs> and people go through my Twitter feed all the time and like, oh, you said this four years ago and you were wrong. I'm like, dude, I've changed my mind 17 times since then. Yeah. I change my mind all the time. If you don't have conviction, you won't act. If mm-hmm. you don't do the work, you won't get conviction. If you don't dive deep, you won't do the work, you won't get conviction, you won't act. And so that's how great investors do it. If, if John and his team had just said, oh, I think subprime's interesting, but they hadn't done the work, if they hadn't gone line by line, zip code by zip code, and seen the actual data on, same thing as Michael Burry, they wouldn't have done it, but they did. And for some reason, he and others, people I admire and respect, aren't doing the work on Bitcoin or Ethereum. If you do the work on digital assets, you cannot, and this is a strong statement, you cannot not be excited if you do the work. Can I offer an alternative explanation here see what you think? I'm so glad we started with this. Because yeah, sure. I, I didn't know that you had that relationship with John. I was literally like, oh, you know, oh yeah. Mark might actually know John. So I'm really glad uh, that I did this. But here's my thoughts. So I had the same connection in between Michael Burry and John Paulson. And um, someone told me this about Nouriel Rabini a little while ago. I can't remember. It was uh, someone who worked with him. He's like, look, he's a really nice guy. He made his career by calling the 2007-2008 bubble. And yeah. And what happens when you make your career and you build your brand around a certain thing is that's what you want to continue to do, basically. So the connection between John yep. Paulson and Michael Burry, they were you know successful guys before this, but they really made their careers on calling a big bubble. So what do you want to do later? You want to continue to build on that brand and that reputation. So you want to call the next bubble. So it's almost like, uh, yeah, I mean, crypto is basically one big exercise in bias and psychology. And uh Nobody's biased. If you're long, you're biased. If you're short, you're biased. If you don't know, then yeah, you're yeah. biased yeah. in one specific way or another. So it's just an interesting, yeah. I'm, no, I think it's, I think it's I absolutely true. It. I think there's one subtle difference between John and Michael. Mm-hmm. Michael is, is really not a bubble caller. Mm. Michael's an amazing analyst. Mm. Like the reason he found subprime was not because he thought there was this big bubble in housing. He just looked at the, the underlying data in the CDO in the, squared and, and all of the alphabet soup. And he's like, these mortgages are worthless. Yeah. Like this, this tranche of risk is worthless. And I want to be short worthless. And so the same thing is, it's the reason he got short Bitcoin earlier this year in, in March, April, is he looked at the leverage coming out of China and said, that's fake, right? That, that, that increase in price in January, February, March that was driven by speculative fever and high levels of, of margin debt had to reverse at some point, right? You can't lever 100 to 1 in an 80 vol asset and expect to win long term. You can win in the short term, but you yeah. can't win long term. And so I'll, I, I think that Michael's not quite as wed to his bubble picking as John, as Jeremy Grantham, and as others. But that's just an p- opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but speaking of, so what you were kind of getting into there with the leverage and, and some of the regulatory oversight, I do want to start talking about Gary Gensler. Now, the reason I included this, yeah. in, this in this week's roundup is because we're, there is the payment for order flow thing. That is interesting. That's been on the hot seat. But basically, you go back to May 6th. Yep. So that's the first time that Gensler got up in front of Congress. Uh, that's when he kind of dubbed himself like the new cop on the beat. And he pointed to a couple things in particular. So he pointed out meme stocks as something that he didn't like and was looking into. Yep. Uh, the Archegos blow up. So just um, where leverage yep. sits in the system and kind of reporting and, and stuff that has to happen. And then he said that crypto merited a deep look. And the interesting thing about Gensler is that he taught a class on this. He is not clue. Yep. He deeply, deeply understands the space, I think. So like the least yeah. charitable way to look at this is that oh man, you actually have a regulator who knows their stuff. That could be way more dangerous than someone who doesn't know their stuff. A more charitable way of looking at it is saying, this is a guy who gets it. He understands both sides of the aisle, so to speak. He knows that this isn't going to continue to be non-regulated for a long period of time. He also gets how to probably do it in the best ways and maybe push back on some areas that you know, should be pushed back on. So what's your interpretation? And, and I'm starting to hear from like a lot of funds and projects that I talk to that it's like, 
we are getting a lot more calls from the SEC and different regulatory departments and stuff like that. So what's your kind of thought on uh, Gensler and kind of this this recent push in, yeah. in regulation? You know, I, I, look, first off, I actually admire how the SEC has approached crypto mm-hmm. over the past decade. Right? They've been measured. They've been prudent. And they've been consistent. That is not their long-term history, by the way. Uh, so so I, I have to give them credit where credit is due. The one problem I see is uh, the chair of any government position, I think, changes people. Right? I think people can be who they are outside the world. But when they take a particular chair, whether it's the president, vice president, Congress, senator, or, you know, head of a, of a bureau like the SEC, I think the chair, like, does weird things to people. And I agree. I think Gensler is very smart. But I think, unfortunately, everything that he outlined is like he literally talked to the press secretary and said, okay, what do you want me to talk about? Okay, these are the three things that are hot in the press. Okay, I'll, I'll cool them down. It's like, it's like jawboning. It's like when the Fed says, oh, we're going to taper. How'd you guys take that? Oh, okay, you didn't like that. Okay, well, we might taper. You didn't like that either. Okay, we're definitely not going to taper for now. So how many times have we talked about tapering since 2013? A hundred. How many times have we tapered? Zero. We're not going to taper. Right? You can talk about it all you want. But if you take the punch bowl away, then assets are going to fall and the rich people are going to scream. And so the chair has this impact on people. And I think, unfortunately, uh, there are, there are things that become hot topics because they either don't seem fair or they, they seem rigged. Yeah. You know, payment for order flow has been going on forever. It just wasn't as big a deal. And if you want to break, you know, if you want to bust on it, fine. But, you know, you could have busted on it 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago too. Um, on, the, on the crypto regulatory side, this goes to incumbency. Incumbents, particularly the banks, really, really don't like where this is headed, right? Because in a trustless society, I don't need third-party trust agents. So I want to send you a dollar. I need a bank account. You need a bank account. We pay a wire fee. I want to send you a Bitcoin. We don't need the banks anymore. So I believe that there is pressure, shockingly, to uh, certain bureaus uh, to regulate against um, things that, that you know, hurt very wealthy people. Let's take the XL pipeline. XL pipeline should have improved a long time ago. We need the XL pipeline. It's way safer to transport oil and gas through pipelines than it is through tanker cars on trains. Mm-hmm. Oh, but Warren Buffett owns a bunch of tanker cars, and he really likes making money, sending that oil down through the middle of the country. So guess what? As soon as the side that he supports with his big fat paycheck— uh, gets in charge, they reverse the decision to approve the XL pipeline. That's the way government works. It's pay to play. And I think there are big, meaningful incumbents paying big money to raise the uh, regulatory hurdles. Yeah. But they will fail. They failed throughout history. They will always fail. Innovation wins. Innovation wins. And decentralized protocols will dominate financial services they will yeah and there's no way to stop it you can delay it and you can and you can make life miserable for the people on the front lines right remember that it's the first person the scout right takes all the arrows and so the people who come after look like heroes but it was really those scouts that went out and and took the first arrows yeah and, you know, as we're talking about this, this news just broke uh, like an hour or two ago, but Compound Labs, uh, which is the not the decentralized protocol itself, but uh, the kind of company that uh, contributes to a lot of the development there, uh, they are apparently getting investigated or something by the SEC. I haven't had time to look into it, but it is it is worth noting. Mm-hmm. This is probably I totally agree. With you. This is going to happen. This is the they first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Um, and it's at a certain point. Here, well, here's look, something I've think about Ant Financial. Up. Yeah. Why did Ant Financial get in trouble, right? Ant Financial got in trouble because Alibaba set up a money market 
that you would use through your uh, Alipay system. Mm-hmm. And it siphoned in nine months $90 billion out of the banks into this fund. It took the top two money markets 100 years to get to $90 billion. Mm-hmm. Fidelity and Vanguard. It took them 100 years. Yeah. Okay? I- These guys did it in nine months. And so what happened is the government, the PBOC, said, whoa, 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 whoa. You take our deposits, our banking system fails. So no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. Same thing's happening here. Why compound? Because deposits are at the root of the banking system. Stable coins. Why are they talking about stable coins? Because they're at the root of the SWIFT system. Now, look, we're going to have compound. We're going to have Aave. We're going to have all of these protocols are going to win. But they're going to have to fight really hard in the short term to get through this retrenchment by the incumbents. And what will happen in in some cases is the incumbents will just buy them. That's Mm -hmm. what Cisco used to do, right? Cisco fought for years to not be irrelevant by just buying technology and shelving it. It's it's like most people don't know that the biggest car company in America in 1908 was the American Electric Car Company. Mm. I did not know Think that. Think about actually. that for a second. Cars yeah. ran on electricity. In the basement of the Dartmouth Engineering School, there's an electric car that went 46 miles per charge from 1910. And then what happened? GM said, well, we like selling gasoline cars because we have this deal with uh, John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil to use gasoline. And so we're going to buy that technology and we're going to shelve it. And so electric technology, electric car technology was shelved until, you know, Elon and those guys came along. Actually, it was Fisker first and then Elon. But anyway, so, yeah, I think, I think Gensler is, is probably less – like with, with Clayton, you knew where you stood. You knew he just wasn't going to do anything in terms of he wasn't going to approve right. uh, ETF. He wasn't going to – but he wasn't going to attack either. So there was this kind of nice environment where they, they made a decision on Bitcoin. They made a decision on Ethereum. They said the ICOs were securities, which they were. And you kind of knew where you stood. Now, uh, my feeling is we got a guy in a chair. And I don't think it's the guy. I think it's the chair. I think the chair is now getting money poured on it. And we're going to see some fight that in the short run will be painful. But in the long run, will set the stage for the transition to the decentralized finance world. Yeah, I completely agree. And I know we're running low on time here, so I don't think we're going to get to this uh, I know. FTX. Uh, I told you I don't do short well, but let's do, let's do the last one really fast. Okay, cool. So just uh, on that same theme of regulation, right? So the big question, right, has been these offshore, semi-regulated, let's call it, exchanges, right? The Binance's of the world, the FTX's of the world. If you rewind to yeah. 2017, there's a lot of attention being paid to FTX. If you rewind that to 2017, 2018, you remember Binance? They were this unstoppable execution machine. It was like anything they did, they rolled it out, they crushed it. Uh, and they still, like, the volume on Binance, like, dwarfs anything else. It's not even close. Um, anything else. Not even close. A couple, couple, what is it, a month ago, maybe, is, like, that, that 100x leverage or 125x leverage they're really famous for. That gets ratcheted down. In the U.S., Binance, yep. you see uh, turnover. You see Catherine Coley go to Brian Brooks. Brian Brooks has just left as well. I honestly don't know the inside story there, if that was him leaving or if he got forced out. But And now yep. it looks like they're being... Uh, investigated and, and uh, FTX US, the operant bought uh, LedgerX, which is a very compliant yeah. uh, derivatives exchange. They were early to the game. Um, it's just really interesting. I think there's uh, starting to be shakeups in that space. And I think the, the look, two stories If you here, don't do it the right way, you're done. You're done. Right? Because look, and, and the one thing I, I loved, I did like Jay Clayton said this, at, I think it was at your event. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't your event. Some, anyway, I thought it was your event. But one other he super said high quality some, event. Yeah, yeah, just like we do. Some, some, <laughs> some, yeah, exactly. Some, some super high quality. <laughs> right. he, he said, hey, wait a second. You know, we've built a pretty nice financial system using our regulatory framework. It's generated a lot of wealth for a lot of people. I'm like, you know what? That's damn straight. That is exactly right. So, yeah, let's not trash the whole thing, right? We don't need unregulated. What we need is for people to be thoughtful about how we interact in a regulatory framework. And so I do think that being regulatory com- regulatorily compliant makes sense. Now, the one caveat, though, is we've got to get away from American exceptionalism. And it's hard when we live in the American empire 
Um, but American exceptionalism says, oh, well, we're the center of the universe. No, we're not. We're like sub 20% of global crypto. And crypto lives in a global, borderless, non-nation state. And so the idea of nation states becomes curious. And so you know, China bans exchanges. And what do they do? They move to Japan and South Korea. They ban mining. And what do they do? They move to U.S. and Canada and Europe. So you can't ban it. And you can't really overregulate it because then people just leave. And so I think you have to have a, 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 a symbiotic relationship between regulators and innovators, which is hard because the incumbents don't want that. But hopefully what will happen is some of the incumbents will pick up some of the innovation, bring it in, and they will innovate iteratively with this compliance and this regulatory uh, mindset. And so yeah. I'm actually pretty hopeful about it. Me too. Uh, and, and, and excited. And, and, and I love that we can keep talking about this, and we will get to talk about this on many, many Fridays. So Many more shows. Absolutely. All right, Mark, this has been a great uh, kickoff show. Um, I know we went a little over time, but uh, this was a lot of fun for me. So uh, I will see, no, you, see you back here next week. Yeah.